0: Get 15% off the fullest entire product line with code THEFULLESTPODCAST at checkout. One of the main ingredients in our product line, saffron, has been proven over and over again in clinical double-blind placebo trials to be an effective form of treatment for depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Saffron has been used by many cultures for thousands of years for these purposes, and now the research is here to finally back it up proving that plant medicines and ancient healing practices can actually be an effective alternative to pharmaceuticals from caffeine-free latte powders to saffron baths and capsules there's something for any modern woman looking for ancient healing again that's code the fullest podcast at checkout for 15% off i hope you enjoy your new daily saffron ritual hi everyone welcome to the fullest podcast today's guest is dr Will cole who is a leading functional medicine expert who consults people around the globe starting one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago He was named one of the top 50 functional and integrative doctors in the nation. Dr. Wool Cole provides a functional medicine approach for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, and brain problems. He's also the host of the popular The Art of Being Well podcast. And New York Times bestselling author of Intuitive Fasting, Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and his brand new book, Gut Feelings Healing the Shame Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. Hi, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, my friend. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm so excited to dive into today's conversation. I I've been such a big fan of yours. I I mean, I'm sure I said that on our podcast together on the art of being well, but I've followed your work. And I you're just such you know, there's in this world of functional medicine, doctors and integrative medical specialists, like, I think it's so great that it's becoming um, a bigger, a bigger thing and industry, but you are still someone who's so rooted in this work and, you know, discussing intergenerational trauma and so many things that I think are still not addressed when someone just says, I'm a functional medicine expert, you know, I think mm-hmm. you go above and beyond and you stand for so much more. And I just want to know, like, how did you become Dr. Will Cole, and <laughs> where you're at? Today? like, tell me about the journey, obviously, um, You know, I want to know what inspires you to become a doctor, but also there's so many different elements to what you do and what you share that I would say um, many physicians don't dive deep into. So I'd love to kind of learn about like that background and where you studied, because I know it's so difficult to, you can't just go to one place to get this information. You had to do this research for yourself probably all over so tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah sure so god maybe god maybe with this way that's all i had that's 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 the short answer to that question um but i i love what i do when you have a passion for what you do and you you know the phrase like staying in your lane can be used as a negative like term, like, yeah, stay in your lane. And I don't mean it by that. I just mean like, I love my lane and I'm sort of tenaciously pursuing that and having my nose to the ground, really, I haven't changed my focus. And, and my why is just so apparent in my life and being of service to my patients. and all the things that I do beyond the telehealth clinic is just an outpouring of that main focus. So like the books are based off of what I see clinically with patients, the podcasts are discussions and topics that I learn from my clinical work. And, you know, the articles that I write are from my research. So I've always been interested in health and wellness. I, I was a, when I was a teenager, I worked at the, my first job was at the finish line selling shoes and I used, I'd use my paycheck at 16 years old, to the, going to the health food store and buying the, like, the latest superfood or the thing that I read about in a book. And I, I was biohacking before it was a thing, right? So that always been my sort of science health nerd bent on life. And like the pe- lunches that I would pack it, at, in high school, people would look, why are you eating that strange? Like, why are you eating it like a raw bell pepper and opening it up and eating it? Why are you eating a raw egg and sort of doubting glasses of raw egg? This is what I did as a teenager. In hindsight, I was a weird kid, but it was normal for me. I just like, again, I was interested in it. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't I do it? I really wasn't so concerned about what peer pressure, you know, and being a certain way. And then that evolved to me wanting to be formally trained, into this stuff in this stuff. So I went to Southern California University of Health Sciences in Los Angeles, and it's an integrative health school, there's MDs and DCs and acupuncturists, oriental medicine doctors, nurse practitioners, DOs that are all there, either teaching or learning different um, modalities within health sciences. And th- there was a guy who had gone to my school, he was older than I was, his name is the who is one of the, I, I think, early voices in functional medicine and that's how it really for me narrowed from health sciences to functional medicine specifically and like how i was going to apply this in people's lives like what i was going to really what was going to be my craft and uh, that really cemented that so i graduated school and moved back to pittsburgh where i was from and it was more of that the staying in my lane and sort of outpouring of that focus And we started we didn't even have the language of telehealth at the time we called it a virtual functional medicine clinic because i didn't know like what else i just was trying to be descriptive of of what i was doing because i was talking online about functional medicine and then there'd be people in different states and countries that wanted access to this so we figured out all of the logistics of how do we provide them guidance and support in this So we didn't plan to open up the first functional medicine telehealth center. It just was needed. It was a necessity. And I think that that sort of ripple effect of fruition came from that sort of intention. I think the power of intention, the power of manifestation of when you know your calling and when you know how you can be of service to people, it's really that, right? And I'm an Enneagram five, if you know anything about like that sort of personality and how we see the world and that sort of the researcher and that served me well and just being voraciously wanting to learn about science and learning about health and the difficult cases, like how can I really figure out this puzzle for this person? And my personality works well with what I do for sure.
0: That's incredible. Uh, do you, are you the only doctor in your telehealth clinic? Cause I'm assuming everyone just wants to see you.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like how do you manage yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, so I'm the only doctor and I have a lot Uh, and when I say a lot, I have about 10 different functional diagnostic health practitioners and health coaches on my team with me, just on the patient side of it. So I'm not the only one seeing patients. We all are clinically monitoring and coaching and caring for the patients. So we have a very brilliant team of health coaches and and healthcare practitioners with me, which I really love. And it's a collaborative experience. So we keep good bandwidth to provide the best care imaginable. And that's important to me.
0: That's amazing. I love that. And I mean, you're doing so much. I don't know how you manage all of your time and you have a family. I do. Like, how do you function? Obviously, I'm sure you do things that bring you so much joy and fill your cup, but like, what are the things that you do personally that like support you in having the stamina?
1: Yeah, well, I think the genesis of it is what I said earlier of like, if I love, I love what I do, I'm kind of, I'm Enneagram five, I'm like relentlessly pursuing that passion. And I'm seeing myself as a channel and not a generator uh of of all of this creative energy and passion is is a big difference like i'm not it's not coming from me it's coming through me um as far as how we help people but beyond that like the practical like the less like metaphysical yeah. things the, the practical <laughs> of it is i have an amazing wife i mean my wife is freaking amazing and she holds down home so well and if I, if I didn't have a supportive partner like I have, I could not do this, like I can't imagine that. So she's just, she knows she's in alignment with what we're, we're supposed to do to help people. So that's a huge thing. And then my amazing team, like my, my work wives, like all my work wives here are just like amazing people who really lift me up and we lift each other up. and we're unified in vision. So um, we start our morning off at the clinic with a prayer and meditation, like everybody that's in the actual physical brick and mortar telehealth clinic that are here, we start the morning off every morning with the same routine of just like a grounding practice, prayer, a reading, a meditation to anchor each other, anchor ourselves for the day, it's the seed of the day. So that's important for me and it connects all of us as a team and then everybody that's not in the clinic physically, that's remote working, we have same practices we're constantly with each other in different ways so how i'm able to do this is really being intentional with the people that you do life with and filling ourselves up and practicing what we teach you know every day at lunch i go on a fat, like a brisk walk in nature and i'm anchoring myself and getting fresh air and moving my body and sort of somatically metabolizing the energy from the morning to hold space for my patients in the afternoon so it's really practicing what i teach with my patients it's like this isn't like just an academic exercise for me it's just like this is what i live and breathe and the things that i'm telling my patients to do i'm doing myself
0: yeah. I love that you start your mornings off like that. I I know only one other doctor that does that and it, um, it's the person I see. And it's just so beautiful to watch a team like that have that connection and then go on to be that support for the people that seek out their support. So I think it's beautiful. And um, I love the way that you approach it and how it just you were saying you're like a channel, and it comes through you. And you can just really see that and be be witness to it as someone who has followed you for so long. And thank you. The other thing is, I'm such a big fan of, you know, you're you've collaborated with someone who I absolutely love Jenna Cavello, on her collagen, and you've done really amazing things. And I'm curious, is that stuff that's just like, was she your patient? Or How did that come to be? Yeah. Yeah, through your work, like I'm sure just continuing to do collaborations with different like-minded brands and how that kind of fits in. Is it just like a fun thing for you
1: yeah it's it is a fun thing for me you know it's my day job is consulting patients and people come to me and they'll ask hey what do you think of doing this you know i and if it feels right if it's like right in my soul of of doing it we say no way more than we say yes (laughs) but so it's definitely picky and selective about it but if it's the right timing and the right project with the right people you know it i will do it and jenna was a patient first and that's typically where it comes from you know you get to know somebody and you get part of their health journey and jenna shares all this publicly so i'm not you know breaking any patient confidentiality she shares about the story on social media on her podcast and all that stuff but yeah so she we really helped her a lot and she's we were um a a major part of her health journey and helping her autoimmune condition and hormones and all of her supplements, like she has all the skincare line and the outside in stuff, the deodorants and just amazing products with Agent Natur. But all the inside out stuff, not the outside in, like the, su- or the supplements, I've developed with her. So yeah, we have Holy Youth came out first. It's an adapt it's spirulina, holy basil, yeah. marine collagen. Uh, so it's like a just a, an adaptogenic nutrient dense food, green powder, and then the holy main is just bananas. Like people are obsessed about it, and it's uh, pro, yeah pearl powder <laughs> and marine collagen. And there's new ones coming up. There's there's uh, several in the in the pipeline. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, I love it. I, do you
0: also have your own supplements too?
1: We do. It's not my main focus. I mean, my clinic and the books and the podcasts are really my main focus. We do have supplements. We've had them for years. It's not like I'm not really taught. I don't talk about it so much. It's at Dr. But the reason why I made them was because people would ask me on social media, hey, I'm, I'm not a patient. I don't have a functional medicine doctor, I don't need one or whatever reason. But what are the core essentials that you recommend if you just like what if I'm just an average person that wants to feel my best? That wants to increase my energy or improve my gut health or lower inflammation levels, whatever it is. So I put together what I called the collection, which is just sort of the essentials that I f- find on labs to like to be the most efficient or the most effective needle movers for people. So mm-hmm. there's about eight, nine different products for people to pick from there.
0: Okay. Obviously, I'm sure you get hit up so much, like you're saying with little, you know, oh, this is happening to me or what can I do for this? Like you mentioned, but functional medicine and integrative health treats the whole body. So obviously it's like you said, it's not simple, like where you can just say one thing and have it be a one size fits all. And so I know that you have this like 21 day gut feeling plan and like things like that. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that, especially because it's part of your book and you know, there's only so much of you to go around and some people that don't have access to you through your clinic. So your books are just a really wonderful way to share what you share with your patients. So tell us a little bit more about um, how that can support people.
1: Yeah. So there's no replacement for clinical work. And I think that's from a telehealth standpoint, like labs, health history, context are really important for people. They're at the point in their life where they've done a lot and they're kind of still spinning their wheels and want a fresh perspective on it. But I feel like books, what I've seen since 2018, since my first book came out, Ketotarian, I've seen an amazing thing with books is that people that don't have access to a functional medicine doctor or maybe do have their own functional medicine doctor or have their other conventional doctors, but just want a different perspective or learn more or lean into different things that I've seen work for people. To see somebody that you're not clinically monitoring, go and have agency over their health and take in their own hands, what I've seen work for so many people through a book is really cool to see and this the tagging me on social media or screenshotting their scores and improve from the books. It's really special to see that. So gut feelings is the name of my newest book. And as its name implies, there's the gut and the feelings, right? It, it's a play on words. But you know, gut feelings, that phrase has a lot of like ancient origins, right? Like gut, gut feelings or gut instincts that somehow the ancients knew that your gut was the seat of the soul and also the ancient founders of modern medicine like hippocrates said all disease begins in the gut and paracelsus the father of toxicology he knew the gut played a major role in health like all these early people throughout ancient history knew that the gut played a major role in physical health but also somehow was tied on a mental emotional spiritual level as well so gut feelings the book looks at both the physiological and the psychological. Physiological gut, psychological feelings. And this interplay, this convergence between the two. And I see it play out on people's lives every day of my clinical you know, job. So the book is really an exploration on the bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and our physical health and how our thoughts and emotions and all things like chronic stress and trauma and intergenerational trauma how that impacts our physiology impacts things like dysregulating our nervous system or raising inflammation or impacting our hormones impacting our gut brain axis and then conversely how physical issues like underlying chronic infections and gut problems like SIBO or food sensitivities or nutrient deficiencies, how those things, those physical things, impacts our mood, impacts things like anxiety and depression and irritability and fatigue and brain fog. So that's what gut feelings is about. And I'm really excited about people to read the book because every day, and you mentioned like the, the 21 day plan in the book, every day there's an action item, there's a gut action item and a feelings action item, a physical and then a mental, emotional, spiritual action item for people to sort of learn about both sides of what makes them feel the way that they do. So there's different uh, uh, gut practices like different food protocols using bone broth soups or plant-based like kombu broths and soups and galangal broths and soups to help repair their gut lining. So there's a gut healing protocol in there. And then on the feelings, for example, there's different somatic practices or different meditation and breathwork practices to support the parasympathetic and the, the, the resting, digesting mechanism of our autonomic nervous system. So I'm ex- super geeked out about it. And the research around the mental, emotional impact and how that impacts the physiological is just so exciting. And I get to explain it in the book, in sort of literary form. And out of all my books, this is my fourth book. It's my the favorite, my favorite, most favorite book that I've written thus far.
0: Hi guys, I wanted to take a second to tell you about my friend Olivia, who's a clinical herbalist who makes some of the most effective and creative herbal tinctures and capsules I've ever tried. You may recognize her as the founder and formulator behind Organic Olivia, a company she started essentially by accident after years of frustration with her own health issues and zero answers from the conventional world. After tackling her own chronic health concerns with herbal medicine and studying clinical herbalism for three years in New York, Olivia's mission is to provide people with real life solutions to their needs by tapping into the power of traditional therapeutic plants and intelligent evidence-based formulation. She combines her years of research and experience to get rid of the guesswork for those dealing with everything from mood circles to hair thinning, thyroid complaints, digestive difficulties, focus issues, and more beyond her line of herbal formulas, which by the way, you have to read the reviews on her website. It's incredible to see the way her products are impacting people. She dedicates a huge portion of her time to writing informational articles and her own chart topping podcast. What's the juice. Olivia believes education is key for us to be able to take control of our health so on her show she breaks down everything from hormone hacks to improving your microbiome to how you can quite literally speak to your body when something big happens in your life and you need a software update which you all know I'm all about tapping into your intuition. Organic Olivia has been a notable voice in the wellness space for over 10 years and I just deeply resonate with her message about using traditional wisdom and modern herbal medicine to get to the root of your health issues so you can truly live your most vibrant full life. Organic Olivia is offering the fullest listeners 10% off your purchase, so be sure to use code thefullest at checkout at OrganicOlivia.com. This code is for first-time purchasers only. Enjoy. I do believe that it's all interconnected, and I don't think that there's been enough um, in terms of really bringing this concept together, you know, following your work, like I can tell that that's really what you believe in, what you preach, and what you share. So just having that in a book and guiding people through exactly how to kind of unwind and like really pay attention to that, I just don't think it's ever been done before. So Thanks. that's really cool that you're doing that and. And I really think like for me personally, you know, my journey started with the food and which like was supporting me physiologically. And then I realized that it was all like mental for me and had so much of it was rooted in like the trauma that had manifested and intergenerational trauma and then trauma as a child. So obviously, they're both so important, like you shared, but I'm curious, like the plan is kind of doing both each day to kind of go through the layers, I'm sure. But would you say that one is more important than the other? Or one is easier to start with than the other? Yeah, I'm just curious. What you
1: yeah, think? so it's depending, it depends on the person I actually talk about this in the book. And I say for some of you, the one guts, gonna, the physiological is going to be a lot easier, like it's very prescriptive to say, these foods are going to sabotage your gut brain axis it's going to raise inflammation and impact your mood and impact your brain health. So it'll be very easy for some people to do that, then for some people, the feeling side will be very easy and and the food will be very difficult. Um, It depends on what their own sort of issues that they're coming into this next level of their wellness journey, what are they coming in with, and I see this with patients all the time that they patients, my patients are extremely erudite people i mean they they are very well read they've done their research but they're still spinning their wheels and they're typically doing way more than most people are but they have so much dialed in but then they have these weak spots that they need to really fine tune or the things that are there doing that are certainly better but better doesn't necessarily mean optimal for them. And to get a fresh perspective outside of themselves, say, okay, look, yes, this is better than the standard American diet, for example, but what's optimal for you? And it may not be what you think it is. So labs, health history, clinical experience, context can help us to kind of refresh everything and optimize it all. So to answer your question pointedly, I think it depends on the person. We all have our weak spots, but I want you to hold both sides of the coin in balance and um, either you know staying optimizing, optimizing the one side you do have dialed in, or really strengthening the weak areas in your life. Like I see people eating the perfect diet, but they're you know serving their body that big proverbial slice of stress every day. And that's really dysregulating, their nervous system and raising inflammation levels and impacting their gut health negatively. And they think, "Well, I'm eating like a champ. I like live at whole foods and air one and doing all the wellnessy stuff, but they're like living out past trauma and they haven't really gone there." And then the flip side, they I see the people that do all the spiritual work, they do all the therapy and trauma work and somatic practices, but they're keeping in these like hidden food saboteurs and they didn't realize it. So once they clean up the sort of physiological side up, then all their mental, emotional, spiritual work really falls into place. So I really just want to like have the two sides like meet to, in the middle um, so that light can happen.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I'm so excited for your book to come out. Um, and I think by, when this comes out, when this podcast comes out, it will be out. So I know you mentioned in there shame flammation. And I want I would love for you to share a bit about that with us because I, I shared this with you, but I have a past of being orthorexic. And so I have gone so far down the rabbit hole and been fearful of this and that. But As I came out of it, it wasn't like I was just going to go and eat whatever, you know, I still had that as like a base, but I, I had so much food trauma before and now I do feel like I'm at a place where I have food peace, but I don't drink alcohol and I don't do certain things. So I'm just curious how you navigate like shame inflammation and if that has anything to do with what I just kind of mentioned.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So shame inflammation is my play on words within the book. That I talk about again—that uh, mental, emotional, spiritual impact on the physiology. Like, how do do our thoughts and emotions and trauma? How does that impact our actual physiological? What's it, is, what's measurable that can be quantified? So, there many studies that show people that have shame or um, trauma or the people that have chronic stress have higher inflammation levels in the body and these are things that are quantified for patients so things like high sensitivity c reactive protein or different interleukins or something like homocysteine another inflammatory marker we can quantify on that so that's shame inflammation that plays out when somebody has that stressful relationship that toxic relationship or they don't they're not you know implementing healthy boundaries in their life or they are just like living out unresolved trauma. That stuff that can be the perpetuator of chronic inflammation levels in the body, which is associated with just about every health problem under the sun. So that's what shame inflammation is. It's my oh, okay. like term on the mental, emotional, spiritual, on the physiological, um, and you know toxic diet culture. That I have a very in depth conversation in the book about that mainly because when i when i when i when got my last book came out intuitive fasting i thought it was the most uncontroversial book ever and then the book came out and it pissed a lot of people off and that's certainly not my heart at all and that just shows you like how like perception is reality like i i thought it was such a benign conversation about intuition and metabolic flexibility and fasting and how fasting had been used for thousands of years for different spiritual and physical benefits. And that was what intuitive fasting was about. But then the book came out and it was like, oh my gosh, like you're like saying that fasting and they were conflating intuitive eating with what I was talking about with intuitive fasting, which it's not for disordered eating. And I would never advocate disordered eating at all, but it's literally our toxic tribalism and sort of like visceral clickbait cancel culture mentality where these trolls just sort of are sad and isolated and acting out and living out their pain body and they're sort of addicted to being triggered and offended to be honest with you so i i wanted to have a deep conversation in gut feelings about this concept about this sort of cultural concept around quote-unquote toxic diet culture because Absolutely, there's toxic diet culture in the world, but we've gone so far into an extreme to say, well, if you talk about any food changes, it's somehow toxic diet culture. And they've just swung the pendulum so far in the other direction. And these polar opposites are not the solution and there's a third way what i call food peace where you don't ignore basic nutritional facts but you still can can come at this with a sense of grace and lightness and compassion towards yourself and the research around self-compassion is so exciting and that's how i'm always talking about my pa- talking to the stuff about my patients anyways so i just wanted to explain to the reader like this is what i'm talking about and As I said on social media recently, it's like, and I say this in the book too, it's like avoiding foods that don't love you back isn't restrictive, it's self-respect. And continuing to eat foods that don't love you back, that's a lack of good boundaries, right? So it's, uh, we want to really shift our paradigm away from that sort of, you can't have that and restriction, it's not about that. I say in gut feelings, you can eat whatever you want, but I want you to be eating mindfully. Just take inventory on what foods love you back. And continuing to eat foods that don't love you back is like staying in a toxic relationship and wondering why you're still miserable. And I don't think it's toxic diet culture to have basic knowledge that some foods are gonna raise inflammation, it's gonna raise your blood sugar, disrupt your inflammation, uh, disrupt your nervous system. And that's okay. That's having agency over your health to realize things that you should have healthy boundaries around.
0: And not to mention that like most of those foods are just filled with so many chemicals and pesticides that like, they're just so terrible for the environment. I mean, there's so much going on. And, and like you said, there's, it's like in our society today, I was just talking to someone else about this too, on a podcast, you, it's like, you can't people are afraid to speak their truth at this point, which is another form of self-sabotage, which is being fearful of sharing something that's going to go against the grain of what mainstream is now saying is should be shared. Like what you, your book, intuitive fasting. I mean, it makes so much sense, at least to me, you know, obviously I'm in this industry, but I just truly believe that what you're doing is helping people become advocates for themselves. Like you said, take inventory of what's going on, what's going in their body and being mindful about it over instead of, you know, this is just the way it is. This is the norm. This is, um, this is what our population now is. And like, it's wrong because People are so uncomfortable with themselves that they get so offended. And I really Mm -hmm. think that's what's happening is a lot of times, I mean, even if we talk about just people making shifts in their lives, people setting boundaries, people doing something, it provokes um, maybe their family members or others because they're so upset that someone is actually taking a step to do something that's healthy for themselves. And I think sometimes it really provokes other people and that's the place that they're coming from is, again, this place of feeling like now they're doing something wrong. Even when someone isn't trying to make anyone else feel any certain way, they're just doing what's best for them, right?
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and I think part of this is the fact that there is a true shame-based toxic diet culture that has, like, I almost think of it as if you think about religion, right? And and like what the church historically has done for people. And they've like done a lot of messed up things that really turned a lot of people off to the idea of sort of a higher power and God and spirituality. And they sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater and the pendulum swings the completely other way because they've been burned by religious people and i feel like the same things happen with toxic diet culture you get these sort of zealots on one side that basically like you are only healthy and okay if you're doing this and more is always better and restriction and all this stuff and then there's like a lack of nuance and context and then because of their own pain and shame they swing to the other side and create their own toxic tribalism and their own religion. And and that's really what happens with there's quote unquote body positivity movement is like there are many well-intentioned people there, but I mean, there's nothing positive about metabolic, metabolic disorders that takes off four to 10 years off of your life. And it's actually very much self-love and compassion to say well, I love you enough to know that you can actually feel better. I love you so much that if you want this, this actually can be reversed and overcome and supported and healed. Um, so, if somebody loves where they're at, then keep doing what you're doing. I'm not speaking to you, but there are a lot of people that are they're really confused. That I'm trying to shed light on the fact that. Just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal and just because something's your everyday doesn't mean that you should settle for it. And again, back to my earlier statement with our culture, our culture is so sort of addicted to being triggered and offended that I think they sort of hide behind it and becomes their own sort of uh, security blanket that I think that it's ultimately at the end of the day just another form of disordered behavior. Um, and it's not actually, they're not actually very happy at all. They're actually just trying to pretend they're happy.
0: Yeah. And that kind of also goes in line with what I wanted to ask you next, because you really do share and advocate for just talking about at least just how alcohol affects the body. And I would love for you to get into you know, your thoughts and on it and what you've seen, because I that's another thing. Like I share a lot of when you share, like I'll repost your stuff and say, you know, I don't drink at all, but I don't want to shame other people who drink. But I want them to know it's it's poison. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really curious what if you could share with us. You know, you were sharing that you were 16 and you were at, your lunches were like raw egg and bell pepper, or whatever. So did you ever personally go through a phase of drinking, um, chronic drinking. And do you You know, we've kind of as a society also normalized not only just drinking like an adulthood every single night, like people just share a glass of or a bottle of wine at home, which I think is wild. But um, but even like going to college and having this like four year college experience and just getting drunk all the time. And that's just what you do. And that I, I just get so triggered by all that. So I'm curious what, you're, what you have to
1: say. Yeah, I, again, me being a strange, weird kid, I've never went through a drinking phase at all. And I know that I'm like outlier there and I'm not saying that's what you have to be. And like, I don't want to anyone to beat themselves up. And like, oh my gosh, I hear it all the time from patients. And even people on my team, oh my gosh, all the years I spent like doing like drinking and eating a certain way. Look, that's water under the bridge. It's like Maya Angelou said, when you know better, you do better, hopefully, right? So it's like, this is what can you do in the here and now? like, my path is different than your path. And we should not like compare ourselves to like our own journey. Like my path, like I just never was interested in drinking. I drank, I could probably say on two hands how many times I drank alcohol and it was like a glass or two. Like it's very minimal over my life, maybe maybe once a year, but not even that. So that's my path. It's just not interesting to me and never has been. And it was never out of a moral superiority. And I think that's something to be mindful of, too. I think sometimes people in wellness can be so sort of preachy and zealots about it. It's like for me, and now it's like, no, I want to just empower people and have a conversation about something that's not talked a lot about. Like you said, like when I post the statistics in the research and on social media it gets a lot of engagement but i think part of it it's just what's in the scientific literature i'm just sharing with you what is the latest data on what the research is showing alcohol is doing and we just don't hear about it in our culture because oftentimes alcohol is so glamorized and normalized even within wellness and research is very clear as you said it is a neurotoxin and there's no sugar coating around it and then on top of the actual alcohol there's all these other agents that are ingredients that aren't even listed on many domestic bottles of alcohol that are in it and added sugar and coloring and foaming (laughs) defoaming agents and tons of different things like this that are also not healthy and that's beyond the alcohol side of things so um yeah there's no real health there's not none no real health reason to to drink it, and even in small amounts has been shown to impact the brain and the nervous system negatively, it could impact your gut health negatively, and I see it be an underlying saboteur to many people that otherwise eat very healthily, but have this sort of, they just don't wanna to go to the alcohol part. Like, it's like, you know, it's what I just do on the weekends, or just have this glass every night. But really, if you're stuck at a plateau Again, if you feel great and if you've achieved all your goals, then keep doing what you're doing. But there's a lot of people that are like doing all the things, quote unquote, but are still stuck at this sort of plateau and they know intuitively something's off here. Well, look at the corners of your life where you don't want the light to shine. And sometimes those corners where the light is not shining is alcohol for some people. And I would just say, look, what's your relationship with it? Not just on a physiological level, but a psychological level. What's the gut and the feelings of alcohol? Because it could be impacting you on a physical level. But it also could be impacting you on a psychological level too. Like, why are you eating it or drinking this? Is it because you need it to be that social lubricant, or deal with your chronic stress, or that background anxiety? And you people can have very unhealthy relationship with it, both on a physical and a mental, emotional, spiritual level. So I of course you know me i'm having that conversation and gut feelings too because it's a, it's such a big gut feelings topic it's like i see it play out on both sides in so many people's lives yeah so ultimately as a clinician i am a pragmatist and i mentioned this in the book too that if somebody says i'm i you know i yes maybe i'll go a few weeks or months off of alcohol but occasionally if i'm at a party or whatever on vacation what's the least offensive and at that point i would say low alcohol low sugar organic biodynamic regenerative wine so it's the least offensive it's like the lowest alcohol okay so it's the it's the least amount of neurotoxins. so just go for that and there's many options out there and like hard kombucha i guess could be another source too it's pretty low alcohol and you know has some maybe some merit with the the probiotic side of things. But you know, I don't I what I find is that as people feel better, when they feel great, it's like it's a bad trade-off to go for something that's going to dim your light. You're gonna have it less and less because you love feeling great more than you thought you wanted that thing that dimmed your light. And that's the paradigm shift of food peace that I talk about in the book and with my patients. It's like, this isn't about like, oh, I can't have that. I have to be some teetotaling puritanical zealot. No, you're not. You just love feeling great more than you wanted something that was going to make you feel like crap the next morning. And that's what food peace is all about.
0: If you're looking for a healer but having trouble finding someone you trust, then head to realmofexperience.com. Realm of Experience is a Rolodex of vetted and high-integrity healers across a range of modalities, from functional health doctors to intuitives and mediums, human design to astrology, and kundalini teachers to acupuncturists. Set up to connect quality and high-integrity practitioners with those seeking their services around the world, all practitioners offer remote sessions and provide one-on-one courses, workshops, readings, and retreats. Again, head to realmofexperience.com to look for the perfect healer. What do you think about, you know, that kind of pertaining to addiction? Because obviously these foods and to any kind of addiction, you know, these foods have, if it's pertaining to food, they have flavorings and things that make us addicted to it. And the, like you said, the less we have it, the better we feel, the less likely we are to go for it. And we get to that place of food peace. Do you, have you worked with patients with addiction other than food? And do you think that same idea can apply for the most part?
1: Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, as a clinician, we often another word for functional medicine is integrative medicine right or systems medicine so we are integrating with many different types of therapists and doctors and yeah and depending on where they're at in recovery leaning into functional medicine oftentimes is a great idea for somebody that's in recovery from whether it's food addiction or you know some other substance abuse, because when you deal with the physical health and you get your blood sugar balanced and you support your gut health and support brain health and hormonal health, your mood's going to be more stable. And when your mood is more stable, that is a fertile foundation to really be complementary to recovery. So we work very much in conjunction with addiction specialists for patients that need that. Um, whether it be eating disorders or a substance abuse or things like that. So yeah, it's, it's essential because again, we like to compartmentalize and separate mental health from physical health in the West. But the reality is mental health is physical health. Our brain is a part of our body. And when you get your brain healthy and you get your, your hormones balanced and you get your gut brain access and your nervous system regulated, that is going to any work that you do, with your addiction, you know, therapist or trauma work or um, your AA meetings or whatever you're doing, it's everything's gonna be more congruent because you're gonna feel so freaking amazing and stable. And when you're physiologically stable, then staying sober is a lot easier. And that is intimately connected to what I do in functional medicine. I just we need to make the connection between gut and feelings because it is intimately connected. And hopefully, I get to do that with this, this with this book.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you will. And I agree because I feel like, like you said, we compartmentalize things and we think that everything's separate. So when someone has addiction and they go into recovery, sometimes they're then like loaded up with other pharmaceuticals and other things that they're then using instead. And it's all just so convoluted. And I I always just wonder, is there a place, or <laughs> I've had a lot of family members that are, um, that unfortunately have dealt with addiction from alcohol to um, opioids and heroin and, um, and we've lost a family member to fentanyl. And so it's been really, really, um, something that I think about often and something I worry about for my children too. Um, it's hereditary, but so I'm curious, you know, like how, what are the things that you recommend? You're a parent. Uh, do you have two kids?
1: Yeah, I have two kids.
0: Yeah. Like what do you, recommend you know we're adults here following your work and we're we're doing the work because we're a lot of people listening to our podcast too. we are committed to this lifestyle and we're we're committed to this idea of wanting to feel better and um live a more fulfilled life and so when now as millennials we're having we're starting our own families we have young kids you know my my oldest son, he's four, and I want to share this sort of lifestyle with him without causing trauma, food trauma. (laughs) Like my whole thing is okay, like we eat or an organic diet. And so at least like he kind of knows that at the grocery store, he'll be like, Mom, is this organic? Because even though it's just it's organic, but at least you know, he's not deprived of bread or whatever. I just source properly and get the you know fermented bread that doesn't have yeast or whatever, right? So I feel like it's a balanced lifestyle that I'm able to share with him. But as he gets, like right now, it's easy. But as he gets older, I don't want to impose too much. And I want to do essentially what you're doing with your patients, right? You're empowering and you're educating so that they're able to make their own decisions and be their own best advocate. So how do you, how did you do that with your family? And, and in an age where, I mean, children, like we had so many deaths from fentanyl last year and since COVID and, and so this huge opioid epidemic, like it's all connected. Like, how do you navigate that with your family? I'd love yeah, for you to of share. Of
1: course, I mean, of course, my heart goes out to anybody, your family and what you've gone through and um, anybody that goes through addiction. And like, we know that it's not just the addicts that are impacted, it's the entire family that can go that really in their own way, not in the same way, goes through that trauma, and can be impacted by that. So I mean, I have not personally gone through that. But certainly I see it clinically with my patients. And, you know, I think open line of communication really is something that's important. And I think shame can shove things in the dark. And allowing people to be who they are and even for them to know that you're always going to speak truth in their life but you're always going to love them even if they messed made some destructive decisions and you know that could apply to anything right but even if they know that you're going to be disappointed are you a safe space are you going to be someone that they can lean on I think Will bring a bring light to something that could easily be covered in darkness and be hidden. So I think that's applicable. And, you know, for our kids as parents that can start really early on, you know, and let me just do the caveat, really, even the kids with people, the best parents, and the best upbringing people can make decisions that are destructive later on in life. So there, at a certain point, you have to do the best you can, but then they give give the rest up to God and realize you can't control everything and give yourself grace and give other people grace to mess up and find their own way. And you can't micromanage and control everything. The stressing about all this stuff isn't good for your health. But do doing the best that I can for me personally is just being a safe space for my kids. And when it comes around food and wellness and how we treat our bodies, and all this stuff it's really just being open, being transparent and not being obsessive and shaming and are restrictive in that way. And just saying what I tell my patients, like, we ultimately can make the choice for ourselves and make this age appropriate. But We all can, as we grow up and get older, my kids are 16 and 13 at this point. So they're older, but it's like when you're not with me, when you're out with your friends or somewhere, you can do whatever you want, but what's going to love you back? What's going to love you back? What are the choices, the food, the people you hang around with, things that you put in your body? What's going to love you back? And I think growing, like really giving them a sense of self-respect and agency and awareness and intuition of what things love them back um, and, and mindfulness around decisions is will we'll go a long way. And that doesn't mean that my son, who's 16, isn't going to go, you know, it's a kind of a stupid, it's no hard, cra- crazy stuff. But he will eat things that he, we wouldn't have in the house. But he comes back and will tell me, Dad, I feel like crap the next day. He'll grow in awareness. For the next time so he'll be like more mindful about maybe having less of that or not at all because it's a bad trade-off of something eating something that's not going to love you back and it started for for my kids like pretty young of us showing them like these are all the really delicious nutrient-dense things that will love them back and then these are the things that Yeah, you know, in certain amounts, they're not gonna love you back. They're really not gonna love anybody back. So it's just like we wanna teach our kids healthy boundaries with relationships. I think there needs to be an open, honest conversation, compassionate conversation about healthy boundaries around foods. And back to like my thoughts on toxic diet culture, I think there's a middle way to do that. And it's not completely ignoring it either and shoving it in the dark because I don't feel like that's going to be good either. Because if we're not having an open conversation, the world is going to give our kids conversations about things. And the world's pretty distorted about a lot of stuff. So I think if we, sh- we should be the positive edifying influence on our kids because if we're not going to be, there's going to be another influence that is going to come in
0: yeah that's such a good point i i love all that and i i really love that you know just going back to is that going to love you back and go with more of what loves you back or what's going to nourish you yeah um and that is such a great way of tapping into your intuition so it's all beautiful what you shared thank you and one last thing i wanted to ask um you know i think we You've shared this that hormones are the um, internal communication um, system for the body, and I I've been to functional medicine clinics where they offer hormone therapy, and I'm not of the age where I you know I've been interested in that at all but so I don't want to you know and I don't want to shame anyone who's into that or or anything I don't really know much about it so I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, when it comes to like synthetic hormones and mm-hmm. do we really know what we're doing when we give
1: them yeah,
0: like, my no. them too I don't I, I'm just curious like I've never really asked about it so I yeah. am um, <laughs> I, could ask I think there's you. a time
1: and place for hormone replacement therapy, and you can obviously bioidenticals, um, but it should be done appropriately. It should be tested appropriately, and it should be bioidentical. Like bio, there's, a, there's a place for bioidentical progesterone or pregnenolone or the uh, DHEA, different precursors, right? Done judiciously and appropriately with the you know monitoring with labs and a doctor. I find that the flippant use of hormone replacement therapy and just taking copious amounts of estrogen and testosterone and progesterone without any sort of checking in if it's just based off symptoms, if it's not based on labs and not, I just feel like a lot can be missed and you could be overdosing or not overdosing, you could be taking too high levels of it for a long period of time, which can create other unwanted symptoms or other potential side effects or create things like hormonal resistance Or on the other side, you know, you could be not dosing enough of that bioidentical hormone and it could be not effective. It's just a waste of your time and money. So I think that the context matters there. And certainly, my first job in functional medicine is to what can we do to cultivate and encourage and support your body's ability to produce its own hormones? You know, and that's improving the BioTrain and the hypoflaming pituitary ovarian axis and adrenal axis and thyroid axis and the body's even ability to receive those hormones, like improving receptor site sensitivity. Um, So, and gut health's a major part of that, right? It's where 20% of your thyroid hormone is converted. It metabolizes a lot of things when it comes to our endocrine system. So yeah, it is, to me, hormone replacement therapy should be like a last resort when it's clinically appropriate under the guidance of a doctor.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so, typically like if so it's last resort like you personally really work with what are the different things that you recommend for helping the body and support the body creating itself it's just i mean does it all go back to the gut and how the gut i mean i know the gut creates 90 percent of the serotonin in your body so is everything created in the gut
1: Not everything, but it's a major player, right? It's 75% of the immune system. As you mentioned, 95% of serotonin is made in the gut, 50% of dopamine is made in the gut. It is a major, like i mentioned, it's a major converter of, of hormones. Um, it's a major part of our detoxification system to clear out excess things. So yeah, it is a player. It's a major piece of the puzzle for many people, but it's not the only thing. So health history labs can look at all the different facets of your health, not just gut health, but including gut health. Uh, that's how I would see it. It's a piece of the puzzle, but we shouldn't reduce the complexity of health just to gut health. Um, cause we want to look at everything else as well.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, for sharing with us your insight. And I'm so excited for your book, Gut Feelings. Please share with us how people can connect with you and also where they can buy your book.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. The links to the telehealth clinic are there and links to the book, Gut Feelings, is there. You can get it on Amazon in any, any, any uh, indie book, any bound, Barnes and Noble, Target, all of that stuff. And the Art of Being Well podcast links to my podcast are there too.